Chapter the Fifth, Section Five, and Chapter the Sixth, Section One of the Secret Places of the Heart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christopher Most. The Secret Places of the Heart by H. G. Wells. Chapter the Fifth, Section Five. Chapter the Sixth, Section One. Section Five. In the evening, after a pleasant supper, they took a turn about the walls, with the moon sinking over beyond Silbury, and then went in and sat by lamplight before a brightly fussy wood fire and smoked. There were long intervals of friendly silence. "'I don't in the least want to go on talking about myself,' said Sir Richmond abruptly. "'Let it rest, then,' said the doctor generously. "'Today among these ancient memories has taken me out of myself wonderfully. I can't tell you how good Avery's been for me.' This afternoon half my consciousness seemed to be a tattooed creature wearing a knife of stone. The healing touch of history. And for the first time my damned committee has mattered scarcely a rap. Sir Richmond stretched himself in his chair and blinked cheerfully at a cigar smoke. Nevertheless, he said, this confessional business of yours has been an excellent exercise. It has enabled me to get outside myself, to look at myself as a case. Now I can even see myself as a remote case. That I needn't bother about further, so far as that goes. I think we've done all that there is to be done. I shouldn't say that quite yet, said the doctor. I don't think I'm a subject for real psychoanalysis at all. I'm not an overlaid sort of person. When I spread myself out, there's not much indication of a suppressed wish or of anything masked or buried of that sort. What you get is a quite open and recognized discord of two sets of motives. The doctor considered. Yes, I think that's true. Your libido is, I should say, exceptionally free. Generally you are doing what you want to do. Overdoing, in fact, what you want to do and getting simply tired. Which is the theory I started with. I'm a case of fatigue under irritating circumstances with very little mental complication or concealment. Yes, said the doctor. I agree. You're not a case for psychoanalysis, strictly speaking, at all. You are in open conflict with yourself upon moral and social issues practically open. Your problems are problems of conscious conduct. As I said. Of what renunciations you have consciously to make. Sir Richmond did not answer that. This pilgrimage of ours, he said presently, has made for magnanimity. This day particularly has been a good day. When we stood on this old wall here in the sunset, I seemed to be standing outside myself in an immense still sphere of past and future. I stood with my feet upon the Stone Age, and saw myself four thousand years away, and all my distresses as very little incidents in that perspective. Away there in London the case is altogether different. After three hours or so of the committee one concentrates into one little inflamed moment of personality. There is no past any longer. There is no future. There is only the rankling dispute. For all those three hours, perhaps, I've been thinking of just what I had to say, just how I had to say it, just how I looked when I said it, just how much I was making myself understood, how I might be misunderstood, how I might be misrepresented, challenged, denied. One draws in more and more as one is used up. At last one is reduced to a little, raw, bleeding, desperately fighting pinpoint of self. One goes back to one's home, unable to recover, fighting it over again, all night sometimes. I get up and walk about the room and curse. Martineau, how is one to get the Avebury frame of mind to Westminster? When Westminster's as dead as Avebury, said the doctor unhelpfully. He added after some seconds, Milton knew of these troubles. Not without dust or heat, he wrote. 
A great phrase. But the dust chokes me, said Sir Richmond. He took up a copy of the Green Roads of England that lay beside him on the table, but he did not open it. He held it in his hand, and said the thing he had in mind to say all that evening. I do not think that I shall stir up my motives any more for a time. Better to go on into the West Country, cooling my poor old brain in these wide shadows of the past. I can prescribe nothing better, said Dr. Martineau. Incidentally, we may be able to throw a little more light on one or two of your minor entanglements. I don't want to think of them, said Sir Richmond. Let me get right away from everything, until my skin has grown again. Chapter the Sixth the Encounter at Stonehenge Section 1 Next day in the early afternoon, after a farewell walk over the downs round Avebury, they went by way of Device and Netheravon and Amesbury to Stonehenge. Dr. Martineau had seen this ancient monument before, but now, with Avebury fresh in his mind, he found it a poorer thing than he had remembered it to be. Sir Richmond was frankly disappointed. After the real greatness and mystery of the older place, it seemed a poor little heap of stones, it did not even dominate the landscape. It was some way from the crest of the swelling down on which it stood, and it was further dwarfed by the colossal airship hangars and clustering offices of the air station that the Great War had called into existence upon the slopes of the southwest. It looks, Sir Richmond said, as though some old giantess had left a discarded set of teeth on the hillside. Far more impressive than Stonehenge itself were the barrows that capped the neighboring crests. The sacred stones were fenced about, and our visitors had to pay admission at a little kiosk by the gate. At the side of the road stood a travel-stained middle-class automobile, with a miscellany of dusty luggage, rugs, and luncheon things therein, a family automobile with the father no doubt at the wheel. Sir Richmond left his own trim coupe at its tail. They were impeded at the entrance by a difference of opinion between the keeper of the turnstile and a small but resolute boy of perhaps five or six who proposed to leave the enclosure. The custodian thought that it would be better if his nurse or mother came out with him. "'She keeps on looking at it,' said the small boy. "'It isn't anything. I want to go clean the car.' "'You won't see Stonehenge every day, young man,' said the custodian, a little piqued. "'It's only an old beach,' said the small boy, with extreme conviction. "'It's rocks like the seaside, and there isn't no sea.' The man at the turnstile mutely consulted the doctor. I don't see that it can get into any harm here, the doctor advised, and the small boy was released from archaeology. He strolled to the family automobile, produced an entuka pocket handkerchief, and set himself to polish the lamps with great assiduity. The two gentlemen lingered at the turnstile for a moment or so to watch his proceedings. Modern child, said Sir Richmond. Old stones are just old stones to him, but motor cars are gods. You can hardly expect him to understand, at his age said the custodian, jealous for the honor of Stonehenge. "'Reminds me of Martin's little girl,' said Sir Richmond, as he and Dr. Martineau went on towards the circle. "'When she encountered her first dragonfly, she was greatly delighted. "'Oh, de little airplane!' she said. As they approached the grey old stones, they became aware of a certain agitation among them. A voice, an authoritative bass voice, was audible, crying, "'Anthony!' A nurse appeared remotely, going in the direction of the airplane sheds, and her cry of, "'Master Anthony!' came faintly on the breeze. An extremely pretty young woman of five or six-and-twenty became visible standing on one of the great prostrate stones in the center of the place. She was a black-haired, sunburnt individual, and she stood with her arms akimbo, quite frankly amused at the disappearance of Master Anthony, and offering no sort of help for his recovery. 
On the greensward before her stood the paterfamilias of the family automobile, and he was making a trumpet with his hands in order to repeat the name of Anthony with greater effect. A short lady in grey emerged from the encircling megaliths, and one or two other feminine personalities produced effects of movement rather than of individuality as they flitted among the stones. "'Well,' said the lady in grey, with that rising intonation of humorous conclusion which is so distinctly American, "'those druids have got him!' "'He's hiding!' said the automobilist, in a voice that promised chastisement to the hidden hearer. "'That's what he's doing. He ought not to play tricks like this. A great boy who's almost six. "'If you're looking for a small, resolute boy of six, said Sir Richmond, addressing himself to the lady on the rock rather than to the angry parent below, "'he's perfectly safe and happy. Those druids haven't got him. Indeed, they failed altogether to get him. Stonehenge, he says, is no good.' So he's gone back to the clean the lamps of your car. Oh, so that's it, said Papa. Winnie, go and tell Price he's gone back to the car. They oughtn't to let him out of the enclosure. The excitement about Master Anthony collapsed. The rest of the people in the circles crystallized out into the central space as two apparent sisters and an apparent aunt and nurse, who was packed off at once to supervise the lamp-cleaning. The head of the family found some difficulty, it would seem, in readjusting his mind to the comparative innocence of Anthony, and Sir Richmond and the young lady on the rock sought as if by common impulse to establish a general conversation. There were faint traces of excitement in her manner, as though there had been some controversial passage between herself and the family gentleman. "'We were discussing the age of this old place,' she said, smiling in the frankest and friendliest way. "'How old do you think it is?' The father of Anthony intervened, also with a shadow of controversy in his manner. "'I was explaining to this young lady that it dates back to the early Bronze Age, before chronology existed. But she insists on dates.' "'Nothing of bronze was ever found here,' said Sir Richmond. "'Well, when was this early Bronze Age, anyway?' said the young lady. Sir Richmond sought a recognizable datum. "'Bronze got to Britain somewhere between the times of Moses and Solomon.' Ah, said the young lady, as who should say, this man at least talks sense. But these stones are all shaped, said the father of the family. It's difficult to see how they could have been done without something harder than stone. I don't see the place, said the young lady on the stone. I can't imagine how they did it up, not one bit. Did it up? exclaimed the father of the family in a tone of one accustomed to find a gentle sport in the intellectual frailties of his womenkind. "'It's just the bones of a place. They hung things round it. They draped it.' "'But what things?' asked Sir Richmond. "'Oh, they had things all right. Skins, perhaps. Mats of rushes, bast cloth, fibre of all sorts, wadded stuff.' "'Stonehenge draped. It's really a delightful idea.' said the father of the family, enjoying it. "'It's quite a possible one,' said Sir Richmond. "'Or they may have used wicker,' the young lady went on, undismayed. She seemed to concede a point. "'Wicker is likelier.' "'But surely,' said the father of the family, with the expostulatory voice and gesture of one who would recall erring wits to his sanity, "'it's far more impressive standing out bare and noble as it does in lonely splendour.' "'But all this country may have been wooded, then.' said Sir Richmond, in which case it wouldn't have stood out. It doesn't stand out so very much even now. You came to it through a grove, said the young lady, eagerly picking up the idea. Probably beach, said Sir Richmond. Which may have pointed to the midsummer sunrise, 
said Dr. Martineau, unheeded. These are novel ideas, said the father of the family, in the reproving tone of one who never allows a novel idea inside his doors, if he can prevent it. Well, said the young lady, I guess there was some sort of show here anyhow, and no human being ever had a show yet without trying to shut people out of it in order to make them come in. I guess this was covered in all right. A dark hunched old place in a wood, beech stems, smooth like pillars, and they came to it at night, in procession, beating drums, scared half out of their wits. They came in there, and went round the inner circle with their torches, and so they were shown. The torches were put out, and the priests did their mysteries, until dawn broke. That is how they worked it. "'But even you can't tell what the show was, Vivi,' said the lady in grey, who was standing now at Dr. Martineau's elbow. "'Something horrid,' said Anthony's younger sister to her elder in a stage whisper. "'Pluggy!' agreed Anthony's elder sister to the younger, in a noiseless voice that certainly did not reach farther. "'Squeals!' This young lady who was addressed as Vivi was perhaps one or two and twenty, Dr. Martineau thought. He was not very good at feminine ages. She had a clear, sun-brown complexion with dark hair and smiling lips. Her features were finely modeled, with just that added touch of breadth in the brow and softness in the cheekbones, that faint flavor of the Amerindian one sees at times in American women. Her voice was a very soft and pleasing voice, and she spoke persuasively and not assertively as many American women do. Her determination to make the dry bones of Stonehenge live shamed the doctor's disappointment with the place. And when she had spoken, Dr. Martineau noted that she looked at Sir Richmond as if she expected him at least to confirm her vision. Sir Richmond was evidently prepared to confirm it. With a queer little twinge of infringed proprietorship, the doctor saw Sir Richmond step up on the prostrate megalith and stand beside her, the better to appreciate her point of view. He smiled down at her. "'Now, why do you think they came in there?' he asked. The young lady was not very clear about her directions. She did not know of the roadway running to the Avon River, nor of the alleged race-course to the north. Nor had she ever heard that the stones were supposed to be of two different periods, and that some of them might possibly have been brought from a very great distance. End of Chapter the Fifth, Section Five, and Chapter the Sixth, Section One of The Secret Places of the Heart. Recording by Christopher Most.